Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a reflection that will have us engaging chapter 9, certainly a chapter that continues to have us examining our own lives, examining the way we live, Paul just never theologically reflects in the abstract, although at times it may seem like that. Okay, no, he's very uh, intentional in what he is saying, and certainly also at the same time inspired. Now, before we get into chapter 9, I was on my way over here this evening thinking to myself, asking myself the question, how is Lent going for me? So I ask you the question, how is your Lent going? And now, please understand my question. I'm not asking you this question in the context of, have you been faithful to your Lenten discipline and your Lenten practices? But more specifically, in your faithfulness, in your discipline practices, have you been intentional in offering them to God that your disciplines and, and your practices might have redemptive value to them? See, there's a distinction. It's one thing to do something, and it's another to take what you are doing and offer it up to God. I fear that maybe some of us have slipped into that practice of, yeah, being faithful to what we said we were going to give up, but even sometimes at the cost of complaining about what we have given up, as opposed to the opposite of giving it to God, right? So, the Lenten practice that you have taken up should be something that has drawn you closer to Jesus Christ, not drawn you farther away from Jesus Christ. And now some of you might be thinking, well, how could that happen? If you made a commitment at the beginning of Lent to give something up or do something, and you are not doing it well, well, that can have the adverse effect of actually distancing you from Jesus Christ because we, we complain, we gripe, we throw up our arms, as opposed to, again, enter deeper into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, calling Jesus Christ your friend, talking to Jesus Christ like you would as any other friend, but even more so, right, because he's Jesus Christ. Go there and do ask yourself the question, how is my Lent going? You know, we are just a week away, what, four days away, really, from Holy Week. Those seven holy days of reflection into the seriousness of our faith, into the seriousness of the cross, and what that meant, just not for the world, but as you journey deeper into the heart of Christ, what that means for you, what that means for you. So a way of prepping yourself before Holy Week begins, is to ask yourself the question, have you been intentional in offering 
your disciplines and your practices this Lent to God? Have you gone about your days in conversation with God, saying to God, saying to Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. I give this to you. Help me understand your ways in this moment and that moment. Be real. Be serious. Be honest. This is what Jesus desires. He already knows the truth, right? He just wants us to see the truth for what it is, the same way he sees it. And the only way we can begin to do that is by being honest with ourselves, who we are versus who we are not. Who we are versus who we are not. So enter into that dynamism, that forcefulness, that is that virtue of truthfulness. The first practical virtue, as one great theologian Romano Gardini once said, and of course a virtue that is akin to the virtue of humility, right? It takes a humble spirit, a humble man, to be truthful about who he or she is. Okay? All right. So, with that, let us open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, each chapter certainly has its emphasis, right? As many of the commentaries will point out, if you are working through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians with a particular commentary, they will highlight that this chapter really does focus in on Paul's personal example. And so Paul certainly wants us to see that example speaks louder than words. Jesus lived the message he preached, of course, right? And he told his disciples to do the same. And of course, you know that when you carefully read through the Gospels, what did he call some of those supposed followers of God? But hypocrites, if they did not live the life they preached, right? You say one thing and you do another. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Don't be a hypocrite. So essentially, my friends, when you talk about that phrase, example, speaking louder than words than, that I think we've all heard before, it in many ways is following Jesus, walking in his footsteps. And Paul, in this particular chapter, appeals to his own example. And he does it in a way that is of delicate concern for others, even when it means foregoing his own right. So when you read this chapter, at first glance, you might think to yourself, gosh, Paul is kind of on his high horse here. But there's so much more going on. And you and I both know that when it comes to St. Paul, there must be something else going on. All right, I will go ahead and get started by reading chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. And we, we may get farther than that, but I think that certainly can get us started. Verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Wait, what is Paul doing here? Just real fast here. He's asking questions. He just asked four questions in one verse. Why is he asking questions? Well, what have we said before? You ask questions to get people thinking more critically about what they are saying. 
Remember, in this letter, Paul is responding himself to questions he has received. So like Jesus, he is responding to a question with a question. Not that he doesn't understand something, but by rather in asking the question, he is getting the person who is initially asking the question to take ownership of, of what they are saying and how they are thinking so that what they are thinking and what they are saying might be something rooted in truth. Okay, verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a wife as the other apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say this on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of a share in the crop. If we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim upon you, do not we still do more? Yeah, that was one question after another, was it not? <laughs> one question after another. So here, Paul is speaking to the rights of an apostle in many ways. And living out his apostleship in how he writes. If you're paying close attention, he offered up more than just four questions, but those 12 verses were a series of questions. And what was in the middle of those series of questions was him quoting the Old Testament. My dear friends, he is a master rabbi, and he learned from not only the great Rabbi Gamaliel, but of course, from Jesus Christ himself, who was constantly asking questions and constantly going to the Old Testament to explain the way in which the new Christian and Catholic Church would govern itself. All right, all that being said, Paul clearly prefers to motivate by means other than laying down the law, at least in this case, very specific again to his example. St. Paul believes his own example is a chief means to bring about a deeper understanding of what this new covenant church is all about in its daily rhythm, huh? But is there not a risk in doing so? What did I say off the top this evening? You read St. Paul, and if you just do it quickly, hurriedly, you might think to yourself, gosh, Paul is on his high horse, right? Certainly, the Corinthians might read this as Paul on his high horse, boasting unnecessarily. But as uh, George Montague, the commentator to the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, highlights, he goes to Plutarch. And I thought this to be very, very interesting. Plutarch, who lived in the same century as Paul, wrote an essay 
on how to praise oneself in a way that was acceptable to the audience. And Plutarch laid out three conditions, three conditions that when you look at them carefully, certainly they are conditions that Paul met. First, you have to defend yourself against a charge. Second, you have to do so under compulsion. And third, you are doing so for the good of others. And more specifically, in this case and in this context, for admonishing them. So, though Plutarch lived a generation after St. Paul, certainly we can begin to appreciate that St. Paul fulfilled these three expectations, these three rhetorical tools of the day, right? What is a rhetorical question? Well, a question that you know the answer to, but you give it so as to draw out something for the sake of other, what we were just talking about. St. Paul is fulfilling these three tools. Let's reflect deeper here. We know elsewhere that Paul boasts of his weakness, right? A point of fact, his apostleship is only as good as his weakness. I boast of my weakness in Christ. He is saying my apostleship is only as good as my weakness because my apostleship is only going to be fulfilled to the degree that Jesus Christ is living in me. You see, we boast, and when we do so, we put ourselves first. We say, look at me. Look at what I have accomplished. Or look at what I think about this. Look at how I understand this. Isn't that important? Didn't I just give you insight on this matter? It's about me, myself, and I, as opposed to what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At least that is human boasting, right? I mean, how many times have you been in the conversation? And if you're going to be honest with yourself, you really didn't respond to what the person is saying. But if you didn't already interject when they were done saying, you made a point to offer what you think, even if what you think was not asked for. Or you respond to something that actually had nothing to do with what the other person was saying. My dear friends, the person on the other side of what you said is probably asking themselves the question, why is he or she saying what they are saying? This has nothing to do with our conversation. And why is that person, he or she, placing such an emphasis on themselves? Right? Have you ever been in a conversation with someone like that? Maybe you were just today. Maybe you were just today. Or maybe you were that person. And I would challenge you. I certainly look in the mirror on this one. Did I make a point to draw attention to myself unnecessarily? Did I make a point to interject, chime in on a conversation unnecessarily? Did I make a conversation about what I have done, about my prestige, my status? These are very specific questions that we need to start asking if we are going to go deeper into this Christian vocation that is about not, again, me, myself, and I, but about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, about the Holy Trinity, about the triune God. Okay, now getting back into these opening verses, you have heard me say on more than one occasion that there 
can easily be a tendency to, well, do what we did this evening and lose sight of the larger whole. We started with chapter 9, verse 1, right? Well, to appreciate chapter 9, verse 1, you have to go back into chapter 8, and more specifically, chapter 8, verse 13, the last verse of chapter 8. Because the opening sentence of this chapter makes sense in light of the last verse of the preceding chapter. What does chapter 8, verse 13 say? If food causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause my brother to sin. If eating meat is a natural right, being an apostle surely entitles Paul to other rights, authorized as he was by Christ himself. What does he say? What does he ask? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Though he had not been with Jesus during the public ministry, we know, of course, his vision and commission by the risen Lord fully accredited him as equal with the twelve, right? Certainly in their midst he has worked all the signs of an apostle. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, and when we get there, we'll talk about that in greater detail. Essentially, my friends, by God's grace, he is founder of the community. Are you not my work in the Lord? Earlier in this epistle, he says what? That the community was God's field, God's building, God's temple. So again, as George Montague rightly points out, he does not say, you are my work. That would be boasting in its secular sense. He says, you are my work in the Lord. There's a big difference, right? Not you are my work, but you are my work in the Lord. You see, my friends, the fields of apostolic labor were laid out by God himself. And though Paul was not given the fields of others to plant and cultivate, Corinth was given to him. Corinth was given to him. The church of Ephesus was given to him. The church of Philippi was given to him. The church of Rome was given to him. All of the churches he ministered to were given to him by God. And we could rightfully say, much like the founders of religious orders, but even more so, really, he has a prior title to exercise his authority over his foundation. Brothers and sisters, the very existence of the flourishing community attests to Paul's authentic mission from Christ. Authentic mission from Christ. And here I suppose we can ask another question. Is what you are doing bearing fruit in the Lord? Is it an authentic mission of Christ? What does the word authentic mean, by the way, in the Greek, authentikos? Like origin, getting to the core. If something is authentic, it goes to the core to who you are. Are you bearing fruit? Is what you are doing something given to you by God himself? Because if it is, it will bear fruit. Or are we forcing something? This is a huge question of discernment, right? Our whole lives are made up of making important decisions, some more important than others. But understand, my friends, all the decisions we make, if we are rooted in God, and if they have been given to God, 
they will bear fruit. And if they're not, I think it's important that you're asking a new question. Is this what you're calling to me, God? Well, then (laughs) you're allowed to ask another question. Maybe I haven't been faithful to what God has been asking from me in this particular vocation. So to ask the question, is this bearing fruit, really calls you out to go deeper, deeper in embracing what you are doing so that you know whether or not it is what God is asking from you. You know, my friends, and what we are talking about right now, I think there's a danger to live out something that God has called us to and not really enter into it. And all the while, as it doesn't bear fruit, look back and say, well, it doesn't bear fruit, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Well, wait a second. What if God called you to that, but you never entered into it as God was calling you to enter into it? And that it's going to be very difficult to have resolve, to be definitive and and what you need to do from there. So ultimately, then what you're left with is going back and making sure that you are doing it right, that you are entering into God, that you are praying in, through, and with what you are doing, so that then you might be more resolved in knowing whether or not it was what God was calling you to. Brothers and sisters in Christ, plant yourself where God has called you. Allow him to work in and through you. And if he calls you to move on to something else, then do it. But the only way we are going to be able to trust that next decision is if you root yourself in the present moment, is if you root yourself in God in your present vocation. And yes, I'm talking sacramentally for sure, but also in that more second vocation, vocation that you find yourself in the workplace, or also, of course, as it might come to us in the form of an apostolate. All right, what else can we say about some of these verses? Here I thought we were going to get through verse 12. I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. What about this phrase, accompanied by a wife? I was going back into some of the commentaries on this verse, and I like what the Ignatius commentary had to say, certainly this is a phrase, a verse that has been understood in different ways. First, Paul here very well might be stressing his right to be married to a Christian wife, huh? His right to have and travel with a wife, which would have included the right to receive living expenses for both spouses, right? Living expenses from the missionary churches that hosted him. Paul surrendered these privileges by living a celibate life, huh? Did we not already talk about that in chapter 7? And no less by working as a tent maker, by supporting himself, instead of relying on material assistance from the Corinthians. Now another interpretation of this text, and certainly according to a prominent tradition among the church fathers, Paul speaks not of marriage, but of his right to be helped by a traveling female assistant. In point of fact, the word translated wife can also be translated woman here. Precedent for such an arrangement can be traced back to the ministry of Jesus. If you were to go back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, 
Um, you can see that precedent. Those are two ways of interpreting what Paul is saying there. Certainly this brings up the question of a clerical celibacy. And here again, the Ignatius commentary speaks to this. The discipline of clerical celibacy was highly revered in the early church and was required by the 11th century. I think a lot of us forget this. A lot of us think, at least within the Catholic Church, that this was a practice by all of the priests and bishops. And certainly it was practiced by some, but it wasn't a requirement until the 11th century. And of course, that practice and requirement has remained since. Okay? So accompanied by a wife. Uh, what about Barnabas here, verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I? Who's Barnabas? Well, if we were to go to Acts chapter 4, verse 36, chapter 13, verse 2, we know that he was a very close associate of St. Paul, right? St. Barnabas is one who was a missionary partner of St. Paul. Something that you find that traces itself back to Jesus Christ is that he sent them out by what? Two by two. Two by two. We, we go forth with missionary partners. You not only see that throughout the history of the Catholic Church, just not within religious communities, but other apostolates, you certainly see it today. Why? Because God never intended us to be alone. God wants us to be side by side, working together, building one another up, and it is good to have a missionary friend. It is good to be able to share and journey with someone while you are sharing and journeying with others, bringing people to Jesus Christ. St. Paul had his, and certainly St. Barnabas was one of them. Okay, how about this, you shall not muzzle an ox? Chapter 9, verse 9, is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Now, as Deuteronomy grants oxen the right to eat some of the grain that is processed by the work, Paul wants us to see that, yes, so Christian laborers can rightly expect material support from the churches they tend to. My friends, this is one of many examples where Paul draws spiritual significance out of the Old Testament that goes beyond the literal and historical meaning of the passage and applies it to a new situation in the church. St. Paul is doing what Jesus did, right? St. Paul was simply an echo of Jesus, taking the Old Testament and the core truths of the Old Testament and applying it to the New Testament church. What did Jesus say? I have not come to abolish the law. No, but transform it, right? Perfect it, integrate it into the new covenant church. And this too is what Paul is doing. Okay. And certainly in this particular case, once again, that yeah, those who are ministers, those who are preachers, those who are leaders of the church have a right to expect material benefit. What does verse 11 and 12 say? If we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim upon you, do we not still more? Right? This is another uh, foundational passage to tithing, right? Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, 
world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.